something about God and gardens. The whole story starts that way, right? We see humanity in perfect union with each other and with God in the Garden of Eden. And then the end of the story culminates in that same way. Right there in the middle of the city is the garden again. God loves gardens. There's just something about God and gardens. Through the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, he talks about his people as a vineyard and himself as building the vineyard and planting it and carefully working this vineyard and then in the end the people the vineyard produce only sour fruit but then in the new testament jesus says my father is the gardener i am the true vine you are the branches and if you remain connected to me then you will bear much good fruit something about god and gardens and then on the last night of jesus's life There he is in the Garden of Gethsemane in agonizing prayer. And then he's buried in a tomb in a garden. And after his resurrection, the first witness to his resurrection mistakes him as the gardener. There's something about that. There's something about God and gardens. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 35 of his book starts us off with this same idea again today. That's where we're going to jump in uh, in this series as we're talking about letters to the future. We're looking at the prophet Isaiah and what he's speaking ahead 700 years before the arrival of Jesus. And in his words, we see this weighed down kind of longing for the arrival of the Messiah. And we sense it too. That's what Advent is about. It's to remember again what it's like to long for the coming of Jesus and to look for Jesus's second coming as well to anticipate the arrival of Jesus and so we walk in the steps of Isaiah and, and the ancient people of God as they felt that longing turn with me book uh at book of Isaiah chapter 35 we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 today Holy Spirit help us today you are the one who inspired these words in the first place You are the one who put every single one of these words in the mouth of your prophet. You are the one who inspired the writing of it down. You are the one who has protected it through the passage of time as it makes its way all the way to us. And so, God, we pray that again you would do your work. Holy Spirit, do your work and translate the words of this passage to our hearts, to our souls, to our minds. To the depths of our spirit. As your Holy Spirit lives in us. Speak to us. Through your spirit. To help us understand. To help us be challenged. To have our eyes open and our ears open. Help us to hear from you today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hear these words from the prophet Isaiah in the chapter before he's been talking about the reality of the desert and and about life without God as, as this desert and the judgment of God and what the people have been walking through as this season of desert in their lives. And then it jumps in with with the beginning here in verse one of chapter thirty five. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus it will burst into bloom it will rejoice greatly and shout 
for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord. The splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Your God will come. He will come to save you. Take heart, be strong, do not fear. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. I love that imagery. I love that imagery. There's something about that, the heat coming off of the sand that gives that sense of mirage of what you think is water is actually just parched land and sand. And yet what Isaiah is saying is that will become true. It will be real. Will become pools, the thirsty ground, bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay. Gra- uh, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. I love that. I love the imagery of that. We're going to come back to that at the end. But don't let that get past you. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Remember, this is being spoken to a people who have known and will know what it means to be overtaken. They will know what it means to not be able to resist being overtaken and overrun. Time and time again, they could not protect themselves from being overrun by their enemies, from being taken over by their enemies. And now Isaiah is saying, gladness and joy will chase you down, will catch up with you, You cannot outrun it, and it will overtake you. Gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Those are the words of the prophet Isaiah spoken so long ago, and yet speaking directly to us right now as well. There's an image I want to start with here. Um, This is from a desert region in Chile, and this is one of the driest places on the face of the earth. But every once in a while, in a rare occasion, because of unexpected levels of rainfall, because of what they didn't see coming, it bursts into bloom. One of the driest places on the face of the earth, the floor of a desert covered in bloom. This is the image that Isaiah is painting in this passage today. This is what he is getting at. The desert places in your life will burst into bloom because of the arrival of the Messiah, the one you've been hoping for, the one you've been waiting for. Your God will come, and he will come to save you.
and the parched land will be made glad and it will be transformed into a desert. Life can show up in the most unexpected and surprising places. And this is what we see over and over again through the story of Scripture. Scripture is this journey that leads us through the desert and to the garden. Scripture leads us on this journey through the desert and to the garden. One of my favorite writers, J.R.R. Tolkien, said that we all have a longing for Eden. He said there's something that's built down deep into us. We all have this longing for Eden. And he says, and yet at this, even at our best, we have a sense that our whole existence is soaked in exile. Our whole existence is soaked in exile. We have this longing for Eden, but this recognition at the same time that even at our very best, it is not the way it was meant to be. Something is off. Something is missing. This isn't what we were made for. And we never discover that until we're brought into a reconciled relationship with Jesus. And suddenly Eden begins to bloom once again. The deserts of our souls. The desert throughout scripture represents trial. But the garden represents rest. The desert is preparation and the garden is fulfillment. The desert is waiting and the garden is arrival. The desert is searching and the garden is is finding and that's what happens when jesus christ finds us your god will come to you isaiah said and he will save you he's bringing salvation with you what you need to understand this morning many of you are probably experiencing a season of desert in your life right now over and over again talking to people meeting with people i hear it over and over again we find ourselves in these changing landscapes and time after time we feel like we're in this season of desert this season where it doesn't feel like anything is growing in us the season of desert here's what we need to understand jesus said that he is the way the truth and the life in the gospel of john we understand that he's the truth which means he's the unchanging unswerving truth that is who he is but at the same time he's also the way and he's the life And while the truth is unswerving and unchanging, the way and the life are both images of of, that are dynamic, right? And represent this this imagery of change. And from the very beginning, Jesus called his very first disciples. And the first invitation of Christianity is simply this. Come follow me. Come follow me. Your life with Christ will be a life in motion. Your life with Christ will be a life in motion. You're in a desert right now, but continue to walk with him. Continue to take the next step because he's leading you through changing landscapes. All through scripture, the sweep of it goes that way. He leads us through the desert and back into the garden. Continue to walk with him. Continue to walk with him. He is the way and he is the life. In the book of 1 John, it says, walk in the light as he is in the light. The Apostle Paul says it this way. Walk in step with the Spirit. Continue to walk with him. He's going to lead you through these changing landscapes. And your desert will begin to bloom again. Keep walking. Keep walking. There's another image I want to show you. This is a painting. It's actually a, a drawing, a sketch. It's pencil and crayon from a nun 
Her name was Sister Grace Remington uh, from an abbey in Mississippi, of all places, right? I love this image. It's been grabbing me. I found this a, a little while back, and, and I keep coming across it, and it gets me every time I see it. It's this painting of Eve and Mary. And what we have in this moment is the Virgin Mary with Jesus, with child, and she's comforting and she's consoling Eve. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Take a minute and just take in the different parts of this image. Notice that in Eve's hand, she holds the apple. That symbol of her falling into temptation of believing the lie. And with one hand, she's holding the lie. And with the other hand, she's touching the truth. Take note of their feet. Around Eve's leg, you see the serpent wrapped. The serpent who tempted her and led all of humanity into sin. And you see the serpent is wrapped around her in a way that would cause her to stumble as she walks. His grip is on her. And yet it might be a little difficult to see here. But if you can see under the heel of Mary is the serpent's head and it's being crushed. Because this is the arrival of Jesus. This is the arrival of Jesus. This is our reality. We have the person through whom sin entered the world being consoled by the person through whom redemption will enter the world. This is not to put Mary in any kind of divine state whatsoever. Don't even get that in your head, all right? But Mary, this simple young woman who says, let it be to me, God, as you have said, let it be humble submission and it's through that act that redemption is born into the world this is a picture of advent it's heavy with this sense of longing and yet full of this sense of hope hope is on the way your god will come for you and he will save you it says that's the promise of advent one is coming who will transform the desert back into the garden again. As we move on uh, past that beginning image, I love how it says that your God will come and he will come to save you. He will come to save you. The promise of Jesus and the arrival of Jesus, what we need to understand about him is that Jesus is not just another messenger. He is the message himself. Jesus is not just another prophet He is the very word of God made flesh. Jesus is not just another servant. He is the king himself who willingly steps off of the throne to step into our world to bring redemption to us because we could never make our way to him. This is who he is. Jesus is God himself, God in the flesh. That's the mystery of this longing of Advent and the fulfillment of Christmas is that God himself becomes one of us. Jesus is fully God and fully human. Now, it might feel to you like I keep repeating that over and over again. And good news, you're right, all right? 
You're not going, you're not losing it, all right? It's true, okay? And there's a reason why we keep coming back to that. We have to keep coming back to this doctrine of the incarnation. Of course, in Christianity, we focus on the doctrine of the crucifixion and what happens on the cross as Jesus sacrifices his life for us and brings redemption to us through the shedding of his blood. Of course, we have to lock in on that and celebrate that and worship Jesus for that. And of course, we celebrate the resurrection and all that that means to us. And the fact that we're swept up in this new life that Jesus wins for us. But we cannot understand the cross and we cannot understand the resurrection until we begin to grasp in, in, in as feeble as we possibly can the, the way that, of what the incarnation means. God himself. It is the incarnation. The fact that Jesus is God, fully human and fully God. It is the incarnation that makes the birth of Jesus a miracle. It is the incarnation that makes his life perfection, that makes his teaching revolution, that makes his death salvation, that makes his resurrection our victory, that makes his ascension our hope, and that makes his return our deepest longing. It all begins with the seed of this idea that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us in this moment of the incarnation christianity hangs on this idea as you've heard us say over and over again and it's so important we don't honor a martyr who gave his life for a worthy cause we worship the once dead now very much alive son of god jesus christ who overthrew sin and death because of what he did through his life through his death and through his resurrection. We worship him for that. This idea of the incarnation has been contested and debated since the beginning of Christianity. Since the earliest days. Some scholars will talk about the way that later Christianity kind of cooked up this doctrine of the incarnation. And the fact that Jesus was divine. We're not going to get into that today. But, but soon we're going to talk through that. And talk about why. And we can prove through history and through scripture why that is not true at all. All right. We're going to come back to that. But throughout history, Christians have debated this. And it's been at the heart of this, of this debate of Christianity. Was Jesus fully God and fully human? One more image I want to put up on the screen here. I want to see if you know this man. Recognize this guy? St. Nicholas. I like that subtitle, Wonder Worker. That's pretty great. All the kids are like, Amen. Help me out, Santa. All right. So the legend of Santa Claus that is all over the place right now, as many of you know, it, it grows out of this tradition and this history of a bishop in the Christian church named St. Nicholas. And if you go back in his story, tradition tells us that uh, he was the child of wealthy parents who passed away and left him this great inheritance and he took the words of Jesus seriously that Jesus spoke to the rich young man when Jesus said, sell all you have and provide to the poor. And he did that. He took his full inheritance and he spent his life giving it away and making sure that all those around him had enough. He often did this intentionally in secrecy. And so that's where the legend grows up of this person who kind of sneaks in and leaves you gifts and then sneaks out, right? And that's where all of that kind of grows out of, is that Christian tradition. 
the bishop, St. Nicholas, was present at a very important moment in Christian history called the Council of Nicaea. This is the place where they develop what's known now as the Nicene Creed. And and after the Apostles' Creed, it's probably the most known, well-known collection of Christian theology that there is. This attempt to explain exactly who Jesus is, to get our minds around who he is and what he means to us. At this Council of Nicaea, as they were developing this creed, the central debate was over this idea of the divinity of Jesus. Was he fully God and fully human? And it, and it went around this, this heated debate of the incarnation. There was one person there named Arius who was debating fervently that Jesus was not. He was not. We can't put him on the same level of God the Father. He's in some way subordinate, and he wouldn't give him that full recognition of full divinity, fully God, fully human. The debate was so intense, and St. Nicholas was so passionate about the truth of the incarnation of Jesus. He was stirred up so much about it that he got up from his place, walked across where Arius was giving his speech, and slapped him in the face (laughs) over the birth of Jesus. I love it. So parents, in your heart, if you're like, oh, I, wanna, uh, is, is, I don't want to tell my kids about Santa because really Christmas is about Jesus. Santa loves Jesus. <laughs> all right. Santa's all about baby Jesus, okay? And baby Jesus might be the prince of peace. But if you talk junk about baby Jesus, Santa Claus will punch you in the face. <laughs> Tell your kids that, all right? (laughs) The incarnation. It's what this entire season right now is about. It is the linchpin doctrine of Christianity. Jesus, fully human, fully God, the word made flesh. He gave his life for our salvation and then picked it back up again for our victory in the resurrection. This is it. This is what this entire season is about. As Isaiah goes on, he begins to say, this is what it's going to look like when he shows up. Your God will come and he will save you. And when he does, here are the signs and the proof that he has come. Remember, this is 700 years before the arrival of Jesus. And he says this, the eyes of the blind will be opened. The deaf will hear those who've been unable to walk will now leap and dance this is what it means this is what's going to happen he says those who haven't been able to speak will begin to sing the glories of god this is the, this is what will happen when your god shows up and he will come and he will bring salvation and as we look through the life of jesus this is exactly what happens Everywhere he goes, this begins to unfold. This begins to happen. And you remember John the Baptist who went ahead of Jesus, preparing the way for Jesus. A voice in the wilderness preparing the way of the coming of the Lord. Remember that John the Baptist, for his boldness and his conviction, is thrown into prison. And as he wastes away there in the prison, once this this promising prophet, people were coming from everywhere to hear he had to say and now he's in the prison and he knows that his life is hanging in the balance 
and his life is going to be taken at any moment. And he's in this anguish, and he sends this message to Jesus, who's his cousin. He sends his message to him, and he says, how can I be sure? How can I be sure? I know I was there when God spoke over you, when the Holy Spirit came down like a dove. I know it. I know that. I know what God put in my heart and put in my mouth, but I need you to tell me, are you the real thing? Are you really the one that we've been waiting for all of this time? Are you really the fulfillment of the promise? And Jesus sends back this message. He says, tell John this. Tell him the blind can see, the deaf can hear. Those who've been unable to walk now leap. Let him know that, and he'll know that I am the one. This is the fulfillment of the promise this is who jesus is we have this moment in matthew chapter 9 that reminds us in such a powerful way that while we celebrate the miracles of jesus and we believe with our whole hearts in the miracles of jesus jesus lets us know that the miracles were never the end the miracles were always a means of pointing to something beyond them they were a sign to reveal something more. The miracles were never the end. As we've said many times, whenever you see a miracle of Jesus, look for two things. Look for two things. It's always pointing to two things, his identity and his mission. And they always reveal that. They always reveal that. We've got this moment in Matthew chapter 9 when he comes up on this man who's been unable to walk for years. And he's laying there on his mat. And Jesus says to him, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And the people around him are shocked and they're offended. And they say, how in the world do you think you have the authority to forgive somebody's sins? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, in a way, says, you're right, only God can forgive sins. But so that you will know that the Son of Man has been given the authority to forgive sins on earth. And he turns to the man and he says, take up your mat and walk. And the man took up his mat and he walked home. The miracles of Jesus are always pointing to the truth of who he is. He is God. He is God in the flesh, and he has come to bring redemption and healing and restoration to the world. What we get laid out in this, in this hope and this promise of the deaf being able to hear, of eyes being able to open, of the mute being able to sing. What this is about is not some leap forward and advancement in humanity. It's actually a restoration of the way things were meant to be. And that's what Jesus has come to do. He leads us through the desert and he's leading us back to the garden. And that's what Jesus has come to do. He close out, closes out with this promise. There will be streams in the desert. There will be streams in the desert and a highway will be there. And it will be called the way of holiness. And the redeemed of the Lord will return home with singing, and they will be overtaken with joy and gladness. They will be overtaken with joy and gladness. The people of Israel, as they heard this promise coming from Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Jesus, couldn't also help but think back in time to the moment of the Exodus, 
when after centuries in slavery in Egypt, they were brought out and led through the desert, through this highway of holiness towards the promised land. And they entered into the land of Zion with gladness and with singing. They couldn't help but have that memory playing in their head. Jesus is the new exodus. He's come to set us free from the slavery of sin and lead us into the promise of reconciled relationship with God. Isaiah is rich and heavy and swimming with this imagery. Joy overtaking them. Joy overtaking them. That's my prayer for you today. That's my prayer. Many of you are in a season of desert. And my prayer is that the joy of the Lord will overtake you. That he will be your stream in the desert. That he will turn that parched land into bubbling springs, as Isaiah says. You may stay in the desert for a while. You may be there for a while, but take heart because the garden is being planted within you. And the gardener is leading you. That's my prayer for you this season. My prayer for some of you, as you look around and you feel like your hearts have been broken by sadness, by tragedy, by the heaviness of difficulties that you're carrying and walking through in your life, I pray that you would be hit by a sneak attack of joy. And that even as you try to keep it at arm's length because you just don't even want to experience that right now. Because how could you experience it right now with everything that you're going through? I pray that you will be hit by that sneak attack and it will overtake you. And you won't be able to resist it. As the reality of Jesus is revealed in you again and again and again. That's my hope for you. That's my hope. And my hope for you is this, just as we saw in that picture, just as we saw in that picture, that your hand will reach out and you will feel the touch of the truth, just as Eve reaching out to touch the baby in Mary's womb. And I pray that the touch of that baby in your life will rise up in the sense of hope and the sense of fulfillment because of the reality of who Jesus is. Your God will come, and he is bringing salvation with him. May his joy overtake you. Jesus, thank you for the reality of this prophecy and this thing that was promised so far ahead of your arrival, and we've experienced the reality of it. We've experienced the reality of it. We know what it feels like to see the desert become a garden again. We pray that. We pray that for the people around us. Lead us back to the garden. Lead us back into the garden. Heal our brokenness. And I pray that you would take the tragedy and the sadness that we have experienced, and you would infuse our hearts with a sense of joy. And that doesn't mean 
that we just forget that those things happen or that we ignore the reality of what we're experiencing. Not at all. It's a deeper reality. It's an even more foundational truth that even through it all, your joy will overtake us. Your joy will overtake us. That's our prayer. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.